I would now like to introduce our uh, two panelists who will speak with us. And the first is Derek Hamilton, who is an activist and exoneree. He is the director of Families and Friends of the Wrongfully Convicted and working tirelessly to um, change uh, the incidence of wrongful convictions and the plight of families of those who are currently incarcerated. Our second panelist is Rebecca Brown, and she is director of policy at the Innocence Project, which works to free innocent, prevent wrongful convictions, and create fair, compassionate, and equitable systems of justice for everyone. So I'll pass this on over to you, Derek, and uh, we will circle back with questions after the two of you have shared with us. How you guys doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, as he said, my name is Derek Hamilton. Uh, I spent 21 years in prison, four years on parole for a murder I did not commit. Uh, and one of the things I learned about the criminal justice system is that no matter what your color is, no matter what your creed is, no matter what your beliefs is, that it can be cruel. Um, whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, uh, police officers have all the power. They can arrest you. They can throw you in prison. And nobody, nobody, nobody can stop them from doing it. And this is why I am an advocate. This is why I fight so hard. Let me tell you a little bit about my story. In 1991, a young man by the name of Daniel Cash was shot and killed in Brooklyn. I was in New Haven, Connecticut, miles away from the murder when it happened. I had police officers and others that verified that I was in New Haven, Connecticut. Yet and still, I was arrested by a detective by the name of Louis Scarcella. Louis Scarcella had arrived at the scene when Nathaniel Cash was killed. He found her, his girlfriend coming from a store around the corner. According to the police report, she told him that she went to the store and when she returned, she found her boyfriend on the floor shot dead. She did not see who committed the murder. For whatever reason, he transported her to the precinct. She said she was shown my photograph. She was told that if she didn't identify me as the person that killed her boyfriend, she herself would go to jail for the murder. Some eight months later, I went to trial. This witness was picked up in North Carolina and arrested, told if she didn't come to court and say that I was a murderer, she would go to jail. She'd be kept in prison until she testified in that manner. Ms. Smith took the stand and lied, said she saw me with a pistol shoot her boyfriend inside a vestibule of the building located at 215 Monroe Street in Brooklyn. The jury believed Ms. Smith because a detective by the name of Louis Garcello, who I mentioned earlier, testified that he had investigated this case and that he had determined that I was a person that committed the murder. I filed post-conviction motions after the post-conviction motions. I filed the appeal. I was denied every single time. I litigated over and over and I said, I'm innocent. I didn't commit this crime. I have witnesses that can come forth and verify it. The court did not want to hear my witnesses. They did not want to hear anything I had to say. They believed that I was the actual killer. Luckily for me, there was a parole board. In 2011, I started appearing before the parole board. And I went to the parole board and I gave them all of the evidence. The witnesses who made affidavits from me, I gave them evidence of who the real killers were. I gave them evidence of the police and the prosecutors disregarded the facts of the case. The parole board wished me luck and said, we wish you luck in going to prove your innocence, let me go. Um, luckily again, um, at that time, I was contacted by an attorney who told me that he was investigating the detective 
that had sent me to prison. And that in two weeks, the district attorney of Brooklyn was gonna reveal that this police officer had framed another young man, a guy by the name of David Ranton. I was working as a private legal at the time uh, with an attorney by the name of Scott Bresnider. And I was working on a case called Julio Acevedo. I ran into a New York Times reporter by the name of Francis Robles. And she had asked me why were so many people afraid of the police? And I said, you cannot be serious. The things that the police do to people in the black community is just atrocious. And I told her about this detective and that when I was in prison, I learned that not only did he frame me, that he had framed many other people. And I gave her names of these individuals and asked her, even guilty people said that he made false confessions against them. Don't just speak to the people that's innocent, speak to the people that was actually guilty of crimes and he arrested them. They said he lied and said he confessed and things of that nature. Two weeks later, after David Ranter was released, Francis Robles came back to me and said, are you serious? Can you give me the names of those people again? And she investigated and the New York Times got the Kings County District Attorney's Office, Charles Hans at that time, to investigate 50 of these detectives' uh, uh, homicide arrests that he had made. In 2014, the first time in New York history, the Appellate Division Second Department ruled, in my case, that innocent people should have a forum, a mechanism in which they can come to court and argue their claims of innocence, because New York didn't have that provision. Innocent people was languishing in jail and didn't have the means to come forth and argue the innocence. So they said, when you have primary facing evidence that prove you're innocent, you should be able to come forth and make that argument. At that time, the district attorney who had convicted me lost his election. We had another guy that came in and he vowed to look at wrongful convictions. The next year, 2015, he exonerated me. He found that the evidence of my case was unreliable, that the guy was shot with two different weapons. And he was in fact shot outside the apartment in the street and not in the vestibule as the jury was led to believe. And he was shot with two guns, not one. He apologized for my wrongful conviction and he went on to exonerate 22 people in two years, saying that there was a systemic problem with the criminal justice system in Brooklyn. Now, one of the things I wanna say is that misdemeanors, we talk about misdemeanors. Misdemeanors are more prevalent than felonies because people get picked up on misdemeanors every single day and they take pleas because they're afraid of languishing in prison. People know that they will sit on Rikers Island or any other correctional facility for a year, two years, three years. Khalif Browder sat there three years on a misdemeanor. Yet when he got out, he was so depressed about it, he killed himself. The conditions in Rikers Islands are horrible. People are being beat up every day. They're being treated like animals. They're being abused. Nobody want to sit there for a day. So when the prosecutor come to you and they say, hey, man, you know, we give you a deal. If you just plead guilty, this case will go away. The average person will take that deal despite the fact that they're innocent just to get out of prison. Every day in my organization, people come by and they say, when I was 15, I took a plea for something I didn't do. I took a felony plea. I took a misdemeanor plea. And that's still on my record. Can we fight this conviction? Unfortunately, New York, after I won that victory in 2014, I thought that innocent people, whether you plead guilty or not, would be able to come to court and argue that you're innocent. The Court of Appeals, a few years later, in a case called People versus Tiger, 
announced a decision that said, if you take a plea, you can no longer argue your innocence, that you waive the right to come to the court with evidence of innocence, that you have to suffer forever. Or the fact that you have overwhelming evidence don't matter. The fact that you can prove that you didn't do this crime don't matter. Because you take the plea, you must stay with that for a lifetime. The collateral consequences of taking a plea are many. Some people are deported, sent to other countries, right? Some people can't find housing or jobs. Uh, and the depression from those things really, really bother you. Like I said, people come into my office every single day looking for answers, and I have none for them. I say, we're fighting to change that. Come back in six months. See me in seven months. See me in eight months. We are now, we have something called the Wrongful Conviction Act. What this act does, let me just tell you a little more before I go into the bill that we're promoting. If you're illiterate and you're poor and you file a 440.10 motion, which is a statute that gives you the right to move to vacate your conviction after you are actually convicted, right? Conviction consists of a judgment and a sentence. So prosecutors have the best attorneys in the world. They have straight college guys at the top of their class that come out, top litigators, and they are fighting these cases tooth and nail to try to keep you in prison. You as a layman can't even get a lawyer in New York. You got to fight these cases by yourself unless some lawyer decides to take on your case pro bono without pay. There are not many lawyers that do that in New York. There are not many. For 21 years, I had to file my motions pro se over and over again, only to have judges deny it over and over again. What we're asking for in the bill that we're asking to be passed in the Wrongful Conviction Act is that everybody that files this post-conviction motion have the right to counsel and be able to at least use the adversarial testing system to determine of equal standing a lawyer, just like the prosecutors have, right? A lawyer to argue our cases. New York, we don't have that. New York, we don't have it. And many other states do. New York doesn't. The other thing we're asking for is that if you lose your motion, that you have the right to appeal it to a higher court to review it, to make a determination of whether the lower court was right or wrong when they did not, when they uh, heard your case or did not hear your case for the matter. Because a lot of times they systematically deny your motion without even giving you a hearing. The prosecutor has that right. If you win, they automatically get the right to appeal their case to the higher court to say that the judge was wrong and grant you relief. Those are two fundamental rights that I think that every person should have, the right to be heard, the right to have a judge decide based on the evidence whether or not you're innocent. If our system, our American criminal justice system, uh, is said to be fair, then how can you deprive a person of presenting any evidence of innocence, whether you are guilty, meaning whether you pled guilty or whether you went to trial? How do we know that the person that says, hey, I took that plea because my lawyer told me if I didn't take that plea, I was going to jail for a year. How do we know if that's true or not if we don't hear him? Why don't we call his mother and his family in, call the people that was close to them to see what did he tell them at that time? Call a lawyer in and say, hey, what was the conversation between you and your client? A lot of times people come and they say to me, what should I do? What should I do? The judge is offering me time served, saying I won't go back to jail. I'm afraid to go to trial because so many people are wrongfully convicted. I don't want to take that chance. I got a newborn baby. 
I want to be here for my kid. That is a moral dilemma that that person has to decide on itself. So I can't tell them, hey, man, if I was you, I would go to trial because I know the sacrifice or the chance of being wrongfully convicted is great. So, you know, the film that we saw talk about misdemeanors. It talks about how the system was designed to break people, right? To make the mass and prison industrial complex work. You know, I'm here to say that I was the victim of that. And there's so many other people languishing in jail, suffering from the same thing. And there's so many people out here in society suffering from it because they got convictions that don't belong to them. So I hope that, um, you know, I thank you all for having me. Um, I hope that, you know, you all become involved in changing the American criminal justice system and that y'all join us in this fight and this wrongful conviction act uh, and, and ask the legislators in New York to give everybody the fundamental right to fight a conviction. If they plead guilty and they come back and they say, hey, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. The lawyer coerced me to lie. The judge told me if I didn't take that sentence today, I was going to jail. Hear him out. Hear him out. Don't just close deaf ears upon them and say, oh, well, you must have did something. So again, I thank y'all. I want to pass it over to Rebecca. Uh, and I just want to say that, you know, we appreciate you guys uh, being on the Zoom with us. We ask that you all really, really get involved because we all together in America. Uh, we all here together. I mean, uh, what happened to me can happen to you, whether you believe it or not. Um, some cop looking to get a notch in his belt just to close a case can pick you up and frame you uh, and accuse you of a crime. And it's the most unreal thing in your life. You're like, what the, what happened here? And like I said, in my case, 17 people have been exonerated by the same cop. He worked over 205 cases. Just today I was in court working on a case, James Jenkins, with the same cop where he did the same thing to. So I think we all should get together here and, and just you know fight the system in terms of making it fair and just for all. Rebecca, you up next. Thanks so much, Derek. And it's always an honor to share a panel with you. So um, I'm going to um, speak a little bit more about that bill in a moment. But I did want to make a few comments about the film, um, largely because, you know, it, you know, correctly focused on sort of what has happened since Reconstruction. But um, I just wanted to go a little further back just to talk about, you know, when the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were written. Um, they were really written, written to protect only the rights of white men, in particular white men who owned property. And the driving force for the creation of formalized police forces in the United States, which folks don't always know, was the desire to monitor and control the movements and actions of slaves, to catch runaways, to quash revolts. So it shouldn't surprise us that although slavery was abolished over 150 years ago, its legacy still haunts our law enforcement and criminal legal system. You know, slavery was followed by Jim Crow laws designed to limit the freedoms of newly emancipated slaves and to really emulate the conditions of slavery by incarcerating black people to create a supply of free prison labor and that exists today. In fact, several prisons like the Angola prison in Louisiana and the Parchman Farm prison in Mississippi were built and modeled after slave plantations. Uh, this history has led to the disproportionate incarceration of Black people today. Black people account for 40% of the nearly 2.3 people, 2.3 million people incarcerated in the U.S., despite, as you saw in the film, making up just 13% of the U.S. population. Not because they commit more crimes, but because they are policed more heavily, often presumed guilty, frequently denied a fair, just, fair shot at justice, and are wrongfully convicted at higher rates. 
a black person is five times more likely to be stopped without cause, without just cause than a white person. And while racism isn't exclusively American, our devotion to mass incarceration really is, and you saw the figure on that slide earlier, right? 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's prison population. Um, not only does this raise questions, um, all of this about racial injustice, uh, and we saw people take to the streets in, in the wake of George Floyd, but it also raises questions about what we criminalize and with a system this large and human, how often that system criminalizes the innocent. Um, there are more than 2.3 million people behind bars. A conservative estimate of wrongful conviction rate is 4%, which means that about 88,000 people in prison may be actually innocent of the crimes for which they were convicted. In general, more than 95% of cases do not go to trial. They, they are dealt with through plea agreements. And there are many, many reasons why innocent people may plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit. Um, I'm gonna share just a recent example here in New York, a man named Jason Serrano from Staten Island. He was pulled over by police. Uh, they said that they smelled marijuana in his car. Um, they, uh, you know, he ended up uh, pleading guilty to uh, possession of drugs. Um, it later turned out that uh, body-worn camera footage that the police were wearing demonstrated that the police planted the drugs in the car. He was in fact entirely factually innocent of that crime. He pled guilty. And why did he plead guilty in his own words? To avoid going to Rikers Island, which to him was a death sentence. Um, and you know, you heard Derek just talk about that. So there are extremely good reasons and why, and there, it is a rational choice actually to plead guilty to a crime you didn't commit. That's how horrifying the system is. And um, there are 3,000 wrongful convictions demonstrated in the US so far. By the way, that's a gross underestimate of the number of wrongful convictions that could have been revealed. Those are just the ones that we've been able to litigate. 3,000 of them, 20% of those people pled guilty of the 3,000, and those are proven wrongful convictions in the US. And the other thing I'll add is those 3,000 wrongful convictions are largely felony convictions because resources, post-conviction resources are put into felony convictions because people are facing incredible numbers of years behind bars. Um, but when you think about it, right, when the stakes are lower, um, of course people are gonna plead guilty to misdemeanor crimes. Um, it's that much more rational, right? They don't wanna go to detention. They don't wanna lose custody of their children. They don't wanna be disconnected from employment. Um, the number of people who have said to me, um, you know, I took the plea because I couldn't, you know, I would have lost my job the next day and I would have missed my shift and I would have lost my job. So there are incredibly rational reasons why people plead guilty. New York has no mechanism for people who have pled guilty um, without the benefit of DNA to prove their innocence. Only if you have DNA, can you uh, make a claim of innocence uh, after you've been convicted in New York state? It's an abomination. Um, and this law, uh, this proposal, this bill, uh, Assembly Bill 98, would make huge changes to that entire landscape. It would allow people who have pled guilty, um, who don't have DNA in their cases, to have their day in court, as Derek said. It would also provide post-conviction counsel, as Derek said, and also post-conviction discovery, access to your evidence post-conviction, um, which we do not have in New York State right now. So these are really just in many ways, very basic reforms that we ought to be putting in place. There are so many more I could be talking to you about today, um, particularly with respect to a lot of what we heard today about police misconduct. Um, you know, in half of the states in this country, police disciplinary records are entirely confidential. So, you know, when we looked, for instance, in New York State, we finally passed a law in the wake of George Floyd's murder that made police disciplinary records publicly available in New York State. And when we looked at the detectives connected um, to the litany of wrongful convictions that we know of, the number of 
um, just uh, police complaints that had been made against them were voluminous. I mean, we had detectives with 50 plus complaints against them um, that just were never rooted out because it was entirely secret. Um, and obviously making police disciplinary records uh, transparent is only the first step. There has to be accountability. Um, but, you know, there are just so many needed reforms uh, when it comes to the innocent. But, uh, you know, this guilty plea phenomenon, the phenomenon of innocent people pleading guilty um, is extraordinary. So we do hope you'll join us in um, helping to pass the Challenging Wrongful Conviction Act. Uh, we have just a few short days left in session in Albany. Um, and so your voices matter. And, um, and we really encourage folks to call their lawmakers and, and tell them, please, please pass this critical legislation. So I'll end there, happy to take questions. Well, thank you so very much to both, uh, both of you for sharing it. Your stories are, um, and, and what you have to share with us is truly inspiring. And um, we'd, we'd now like to open up um, to some questions and I, I encourage each of you to um, share a question in the chat if you have one. Um, one question to start um, is, um, what would you say to people who argue with New York City crime spiking, now is not the right time to focus on less incarceration? Well, I mean, what I would say to that is, you know, first of all, crime, is spiking throughout the country and not just crime. I mean, largely gun and murder uh, charges are spiking. It's not actually crime across the board. Uh, that said, that is very, very connected to a pandemic where people were disconnected from community supports. Um, and what we do in this country is we criminalize addiction, we criminalize mental health, we certainly criminalize race. Um, but you know, you have an entire group of people who are disconnected from whatever community supports they were receiving. There's food insecurity, there's housing insecurity for a lot of people with, you know, mental illness in this, in this state. And frankly, throughout the country, they have been completely disconnected from any, any medication that would help them from decompensating. I think, you know, a lot of the fear that we're hearing about is largely, you know, untreated mental illness. Um, and you know, unfortunately, our culture responds to that through punitive measures. This country never does prevention. When you think about healthcare, right? We wait until somebody needs to be on dialysis rather than having early visits with doctors where we could get sugar pills, right? And in this country, we criminalize addiction, we criminalize mental illness, um, but what we could do is actually treat those things in the community. It's been shown to work so much better. Um, in fact, there's a program in Crown Heights called Cure Violence. This is a community run program. It has reduced gun violence by 40%. Incarceration has never done that. Um, in fact, all incarceration does is, as Derek said, create PTSD, depression, and all kinds of things that will more like contribute more to whatever somebody was facing before they went in. So it would actually make sense to, to solve these issues at the root, which this country has never done, but that would be the way to handle it. It would be to do community-based mental health care, community-based addiction treatment, um, investing in schools, investing in food security, investing in housing. We have a housing crisis. All of these things would actually prevent crime. Instead, we wait for crime to happen, and then we also throw the book at people. So I would just say there's another way of handling all of this, and it doesn't have to be incarceration. Just a terrific response. Thank you for articulating, articulating and that. I can add, and, I, and I can add to that and say that when you lock up innocent people and you throw them in prison, what you actually do 
is create what she said, mental health. Right now in our trains in New York City, you have a lot of homeless people. You have a lot of people with mental health out there assaulting people. When you lock people up, you throw them in segregation, right? These people are in there for months and months and months and they come home to our society defected, mentally disturbed. So you're creating the public risk, not safety. This is not public safety. Because when you throw somebody in prison, they come up with mental health, who do they come to? Society and me and you have to deal with them. So you actually damaging people with mental health. You creating a problem. You are the problem. You're not solving something by locking somebody up innocent, throwing them in segregation, treating them like dogs and animals. And then you expect this person when he get out to be a normal pro-social part of society. You're making them animals. You're treating them different. So I think that public safety consists of one. And you got to remember, if you lock me up for a crime I didn't commit, the real person that committed that crime is still out there. And he's still committing crimes. Right? So that's not public safety at all. That's a public nuisance and it should, it should stop. So, so very well put, Derek. There's a question in the chat. It is, is cash bail no longer imposed in New York State for misdemeanors? Rebecca. Yeah, I mean, it is imposed for certain misdemeanors now. And there was also recently a rollback, um, which I think folks heard about in the press, um, which was pushed by our mayor, uh, Mayor Adams um, in Albany. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it created, you know, more, ba- you know, more bail um, than before. This does not solve to the underlying issues. As I said before, this is something that makes good headlines, makes it look like you're addressing public safety issues, you're not actually making anyone safer. And you're certainly not making people safer on very, very low level offenses and throwing them into Rikers, which is just, you know, like actual torture. And I would like to add that cash bail for a poor person is no bail at all. That's right. If you're poor and they give you a cash bail and you can't make it, you stay in prison, you stay in jail. So it doesn't matter if you give me a cash bail and I'm poor, I can't make it. Right. Very, very well said. Um, so there, there's one question in the chat, which um, speaks directly to this question of this, um, this detective responsible for so many um, innocent individuals being incarcerated. And what, if any, is the punishment for him? And um, how is that going in, in addressing this challenge and others like this officer? Well, he still gets his pension. New York City is still paying him. Um, he has cost the city over $80 million, something in that nature. He, they paying out money every day to wrongfully convicted people based on it. And nothing has happened to him because the statute of limitations has run out. Most of the people he locked up was over 20 years ago and he's retired now. And the city is still paying this detective. Um, so it's a shame that taxpayers are, are paying not only his pension, but they're paying for compensation from everybody that's exonerated that he did it to. So it's a shame. It's really a shame. Right. So, so thank you for that. There, there's a question. Um, please tell me what to do to help with either one of your projects. I'm wheelchair bound, but passionate about this. Thank you. Well, I would like to first say um, this bill is very important. So if you contact your senator and you say pass this bill, it's the right thing to do. New Jersey have it, Connecticut have it, all of our sister states have it um, because they know that this is the right thing to do. But to me, the most important thing is voters, right? Getting people to vote, getting people to elect individuals, put them in office. We need prosecutors who believe in being fair, right? We need people that understand the difference between right and wrong. 
right? That everybody is a human being. That if a person commits a misdemeanor, yes, they should be punished, but they shouldn't be abused, right? They should be treated like human beings first. Some people need programs, right? They don't need to go to jail. Diversity should be at the forefront of every misdemeanor crime there is, right? They shouldn't be locked up and put in prison for a misdemeanor, right? That's just, that's just nonsense. A person jaywalk, right? You make them pay a fine. They poor already. How can you give a poor person a fine knowing that he can't pay it and the option, the only other option left is he got to go to jail now because he don't have the money to pay for it. That should be abolished. So we should make sure that we put people in office that understand to abolish a lot of these laws that exist that were designed to enslave people, that was designed to make the prison industrial complex richer at the, on the backs of poor people. We should abolish all those laws that exist like that. And we can start out by putting prosecutors in office that believe in these fundamental truths. Rebecca. I mean, I, I think that, I think also supporting Derek's amazing organization, Friends and Families of the Wrongfully Convicted is um, a wonderful way to help um, and visit that website, which was shared in the chat earlier. Um, folks are always welcome to uh, support the activities of the Innocence Project. And again, that, that primary activity today is to support this piece of legislation. Yeah, we were, we're going to jump on that in just a couple minutes here. We have time for just two more. We do plan to wrap up everything by 8.30 and we'll be going directly to show everyone how you can immediately go and uh, lobby for this change. Um, you know, the um, another question here is, um, in, in addition to legislation, and, and, and clearly that is a very effective way to affect change, is there a way that you have um, recognized or could suggest to most effectively mobilize local organizations um, with regard to this um, specific criminal justice challenge? Sure, I mean, we, we are working with a lot of partner organizations. We're working with several defender organizations, community-based organizations, racial justice organizations, um, and Vocal New York. So there are several uh, partners that we already have. Uh, we think it is always so incredibly helpful for the faith community to come out um, on a moral issue such as this one. Um, and so, uh, you know, and I think another thing that everyone here can do, right, is, is educate people around you. You know, show this film. It's an extraordinary short film, and it really paints, I think, a, a fantastic picture of just how broken this system is. Um, so, but, but we have a lot of community support for this bill, but I think just different voices. Um, so to the, to the extent that folks here that are listening, you know, are engaged in other community groups or, or have other, you know, or working, you know, even in schools, right? Anyone can call their lawmakers. Um, and, you know, lawmakers respond most to their constituents. Um, that's who matters um, because that's who's voting for them. Uh, great. So, so final question, um, other than the quote, big public offices, which offices should we be paying attention to at a local level that would affect positive change? Well, I think all your legislative offices, I think the prosecutor is the most powerful person in most counties. I think when they come to the churches and they ask for your support, that you should make sure that they have policies in fact, that it's gonna be just. You should call them out on what do they do in misdemeanors? What do you do? How do you treat somebody that's addicted to crime that went out and stole some hamburgers from a store to feed their family, right? You should ask them about those fundamentals and you should hold them accountable because they come and they ask for your vote. 
and they promise that they're going to be fair. But fair to them can mean just anything. We should give them directives. They should leave knowing that they can't treat people inhumane and then come back in the next four years or five years and ask for our vote again. Whether it's assemblymen, city councilmen, prosecutors, but the prosecutor is the most powerful person in most counties. And we got to make sure that we get prosecutors that's going to be fundamentally fair. Very, very well said. You know, we are so appreciative uh, for both of you taking this time to speak with us and share your stories and your insights. And well, what we'd like to do now is move on to actually engaging in advocacy. And I'm going to share my screen to show everyone how you can take two minutes to go onto this website to lobby on behalf of this bill. So um, we'll circle back with both of you in a moment, but here I'm gonna share my, my screen. And Anthony, I just posted the link in the chat so people can do this on their own too. Fantastic. Um, that's, that's, that's great. So um, what we have here is our call to action this evening, and that is to lobby in favor of the wrongful convictions bill, um, which we've been speaking about. It's, it's a long bill, but a summary of it would be to state that uh, it is to change criminal procedure law to make it easier to challenge wrongful convictions. So tonight we're asking each of you to take two minutes to advocate for this important change. So what I'm gonna do now is I'm going to walk you through on my screen how you'll do that. So on the, in the chat box, you can find this bill and you can click on this bill as I'm doing now. And, um, you can see this is what will come up on your screen, Senate Bill S266A. And once you get to this screen, over here on the right side, there's the question box, do you support this bill? And there's a box that says I and A, right? So we're going to click on I, which means you support that, box, that bill. And now it gives you a chance to type in your name, your first name, your last name, your email address, and your, and your local address. And what that does is it shows that you're a New York State resident. And um, that is essential to have your voice heard in this regard. Um, so I will give, uh, we'll give everybody a moment now to take this action. And then when you finish, you'll have a a chance to click the box below, support this bill that I'm showing after you filled in those three lines, you click on support this bill and your voice will be heard. And um, your New York state Senator will be informed. And uh, there are other options as well that you have once you support the bill. I, if I, I've already supported the bill, so I can't actually click on this and do this but you have an option to opt in to other information regarding legislation around the same issue and you can opt in for that and you can become a, an active supporter of legislation on that local New York state level. And we encourage everyone to do that, um, but it, that's, that's your choice. 
um, as well. If you take this moment now to, um, to uh, effectively lobby for this bill, it will be a great, great accomplishment for us this evening. Um, wrap up here with, um, with just a little bit of information about our racial justice team at Fourth Universalists. And um, we, in our efforts to promote social justice and racial justice, we are partnering with the Fortune Society. And the Fortune Society was founded by David Rothenberg in 1967 and has helped tens of thousands of formerly incarcerated individuals um, re-entry into society, re-enter society. And they provide uh, sort of a, a triad uh, platform, which is re-entry services and advocacy. And in partnering with Fortune Society, we feel like we're um, really moving the needle in terms of making a difference. Um, so I want to also share with you ways that you could possibly volunteer with us and through us with the Fortune Society. And some of these opportunities are career coaching with mock interviews and tutoring and tutoring in the arts and sciences, on-site clerical support, food distribution, um, helping with referrals for fellowships. If you know of an organization that is hiring and placement of these individuals um, with jobs and so forth. It is a remarkable organization doing very important work and we are proud to partner with them. If you are interested in partnering with us in our efforts and partnering with Fortune Society, we encourage you to reach out to us at the email address uh, at the bottom of this uh, slide, but also in the chat, which is racialjustice at fourthu.org. And um, we look forward to um, being in touch and, um, and partnering with anyone who is uh, similarly uh, motivated and inclined. Um, wanna thank you now. We are so grateful to Rebecca and Derek uh, for joining us this evening. You, uh, you're doing such important work. You inspire us all.